So if you want to open your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 5. Um, I'm going to be reading verse 4, but I'm going to kind of give you some context, so I'm going to start at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. <coughs> Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you can come, Lord, that you can send your spirit, that you're able to open eyes for those who cannot see. Lord, that you're able to give people a vision of their sin, who they are apart from Christ. And Lord, may Jesus be beautiful. Amen. So we're going to be looking at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what we have is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the greatest recorded sermon in all of history. Here Jesus goes up on a mountain. He opens his mouth. And for the first time, we have the God-man giving a sermon you can imagine it's like light invading a dark valley. It's just this amazing life-giving wind almost sweeping through. People are hearing things that they've never heard before. People are seeing things that they've not understood. So this is just an amazing sermon. So in this sermon, one of the things that Jesus is doing is he is magnifying the law, the law of God, basically the Old Testament. What a lot of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done has essentially been liberal with God's word, saying, well, we don't really need to follow that. Or they had been more legalistic, adding on things to God's word, essentially putting rust and doling out the law of God. But here Jesus, what he's doing is essentially sharpening the law of God. He's going after people's hearts because so often we think to be a good person, it's merely outward conformity. But Jesus is going right for people's hearts. He wants them to be pricked. He wants them to know that they are not righteous. So we really need to listen in on what Jesus is saying. He's going to give us what I would think is scandalous advice. You wouldn't hear this going to any type of a counselor or doctor. It's it provocative. Some of you might even be offended by his advice. He's essentially saying this. You would all be a lot more comforted and happy if you were to mourn over yourself. Or to put it more bluntly, you'd be more comforted and happy if you were to understand how miserable, wretched, blind, and naked you are then you'd be comforted. Imagine going to like a doctor or a counselor and you just tell them, you know, there, there's just so many things that are so hard in my life and people are just, they're aggravating me. They get on my nerves and I, I just don't know what to do with them. So it would be as if he just kind of tits his chin and says, hmm, that's pretty interesting. 
I have just the thing that you need. If you'd like some comfort, you need to go home, understand that you're miserable, wretched, completely plagued in sin. And then he pauses. Then you will have comfort. That's essentially what Jesus is doing. It, a lot of people that I was looking at, you know, different sermons, and some people even call this sermon, happy are the sad. It's almost like it's a contradiction. So what on earth is Jesus doing? What, what is he talking about? Why does he want us to mourn? What does he mean by this? So essentially, kind of talking more about the Beatitudes, we have to kind of get some context and understand really more what is he saying. Kind of get in a little bit of the interpretation. So there's eight Beatitudes, and each one we have a blessed are this person because of this. So the first one is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the blessed is attached to receiving the poor in spirit. But each of them, they're sort of weird in the sense like, okay, why is a, a poor in spirit person blessed? That seems like something that's it's not good. Do, do I want to be poor in spirit? Or somebody who's mourning, that sounds almost repulsive. Or the meek person, why, what is Jesus doing? Well, there's sort of a theme in Scripture that we see where God uses the foolish and base things of the world to confound the wise. So what Jesus is doing is he's picking out weak individual things, and this particular one deals with mourning. So we're going to understand why most people don't like mourning. It's kind of a rejected thing, but there's actually a blessedness in that. So really the type of mourning that Jesus is talking about is a really deep mourning. Again, mourning, I'm going to want to sort of just put you there because we sort of put it aside. It only happens like rarely, and if we do, we never talk about it. It's in the closet. But I really want you to imagine the type of mourning that's going on. There's a good picture in uh, Genesis 23 where Jacob is mourning over Joseph. It's where the brothers, they got blood on his coat. They said a lion killed him, but he was actually sold off in Egypt. So they brought the coat to uh, Jacob, and this is what he says. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, without a doubt, is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on his loins, and mourned for many days. And all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and says, No, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father has wept for him. So it's a blinding, intoxicating sorrow. I don't know if some of you have been there where you're just so mournful. It's almost as that you see, but you don't have color in your vision. You taste food, but it's dull. You, you think thoughts, but they just move off into mush and sorrow. It seems like all the joy of life is sucked out and there's just nothing in there left for you. You don't know what to do. It's, it's a crippling. It shatters someone into a thousand pieces. You almost feel like you're at the bottom of the ocean and all the weight of the waters is crushing against you. It's a crippling sorrow. And that's what Jesus is talking about, a mournfulness. So how then is this a good thing? We, we have to kind of need to get into context and really try to understand what Jesus is saying. Why, 
What causes this sorrow? Why does he want us to have this? So there's a theme in scripture I kind of want to draw out, and it's the, the sorrow of sin. So our previous beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what that refers to is somebody who understands that they're poverty stricken as far as their spirituality goes. You go and you look in their bank account and it's completely empty. They have no moral merit. So for that person, it almost kind of flows in to this next beatitude where somebody understands that they have no righteousness of their own and they become broken. So it's step one, understanding that you have no righteousness. Step two, then comes the mourning. So the bridge from the mourning to the comfort, I would say, is the gospel. So we're kind of going to get into that. But one of the things I really want to press hard is sin. That sin is worth mourning over. Oftentimes it's just talked about like it's okay or it's just that thing we all kind of do it and no big deal. But sin is horrible. So what I really want to try to press is that we ought to be sorrowful for our sin because it is so atrocious before God. And to kind of put some scripture behind this idea, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. So Paul was rebuking the church in Corinth for their sin. So he, he basically sort of summarizes the result of it by saying this, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what Paul is pointing out in this text is that he confronted them with their sin and they were grieved. So there's the connection, understanding that they had sinned, they had done wrong, and there was this grieving. But it didn't just end there. It moved on from that grief into a repentance. Not a false repentance, but a true repentance that led to salvation. And James 4, 8, and 9 Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. So James, again, he's connecting sin, understand it, and that you ought to mourn over that. So now I'm going to get into sin, talk about why it's so bad. I'm going to talk about the foulness of sin, the stench of sin in God's nostrils, and how you, because you're saturated in sin, ought to mourn over that. So basically, what, what is sin? The most basic definition of the word means to miss the mark. So if the mark, you can kind of think like a bullseye, God's righteousness is this centered, and it's like we're shooting an arrow, but we miss. And so, okay, well, I didn't make the target. No big deal. And so swim, sin can kind of get swept away, not really important. But the thing we need to understand is the righteousness of God and where we miss isn't like a few feet. You would need to take all the measuring tapes in all the world, try to tie them together to measure the distance between God's righteousness and yours. It's a chasm that you cannot cross. 
it's a huge, a great distance. So think about sin almost like a fountain of death. Doesn't sound very attractive, but that's what it is. What comes out of it is like this foul-smelling odor. And then all of a sudden you see people, they're running into it, and they, they kind of get giddy, and they're splashing, and they kind of think it's fun. And you're like, what are you, what, why are you doing that? And then they start like bathing in it, and they start drinking it down. And, but you can see they're, they're starting to become blind, but they don't know that. And as they drink it more and more, they're just becoming more and more insane, insane and doing wild things. They're becoming more corrupt. They're polluting themselves. They're, they're just literally falling apart and slowly dying. But they, they don't even really seem to know what's going on. And you're horrified by what's, what you're watching. So you can, another way you can think of sin is this like you have a, a glass jar and because sin just makes you stupid, you throw it on the ground and you dance on it with your feet off. And you, you have like, it, it, the reason it, it makes you, it just sort of consumes you with these stupid ideas. So for whatever reason, things that God says not to do and you think are bad to do eventually sort of change. So you do the stupidest things. So what does it produce? What is it, uh, what are some of its fruits? Romans one twenty one says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. But becoming futile in their thinking, their foolish tarks were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. So God has built the world in such a way where there's order to it, and there's structure. So what sin does is it basically you cross what God has established. He says, don't lie, don't steal. He sets all these rules in order, but sin, it wants to cross those rules. So you can imagine if you saw some crazy driver, and maybe you've seen one where he doesn't believe there are any rules. He just kind of drives however he wants, and you probably get angry at him, and you say, what are you doing? You're going to get somebody killed. That's absolutely right. That's what sin does. When you break God's laws, you're promoting death. You're promoting destruction. It is a dangerous thing to break God's law. It is a grievous thing to break God's law and not even know that you're doing it or, or even care. Uh, sin is also deceitful. Hebrews 3.13 Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So as you sin, it deceives you. Just like in the garden with Adam and Eve. Here you, God had created this beautiful garden. Everything looked so perfect and wonderful. And Eve was deceived into eating the fruit, as was Adam. They thought it was a good idea, but it was not a good idea. So the more you sin, the more you're deceived. It drips with honey, and it's a speech that'll come and get you sw smoother than any oil, but its end is bitter than wormwood and sharper than any two-edged sword. It makes you think you're doing good, maybe even God's will, but you're doing wrong. Hitler, one of the things that he thought was so great about what he was doing is he thought he was doing God's will, putting millions and millions of people to death, all in the name of good. Sin deceives you. 
You'll be doing something wrong, but you'll be thinking that it is right. Another thing sin does, it perverts beautiful and valuable things. So imagine there was an art gallery and it was filled with Picassos and Rembrandts, paintings worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of incredible value. So I decide because I'm such a great artist, I can draw stick figures and ugly things that I'm going to enhance the paintings. So I go with my crayon, my instrument of choice, and some watercolors and I add mustaches and do all kinds of things and I think this is great. I'm just having a wonderful time. But what I'm actually doing is taking something that's beautiful and ruining its value, distorting it. That's what sin does. God gives us good things. He gives us things like marriage, the ability to speak to one another in love, to share and give good things. But sin ruins all the value of those things. It breaks relationships. It causes divorce. It causes lies. It causes us to curse and hate one another, to tear each other down. It does not build up. Sin perverts things. So think of all the wonderful value that God has instilled on things, and there's a shell of it there, but for the most part, it's lost. The beauty that God has created in things is perverted and distorted by sin. So now I'm going to talk about sin and its stench in the nostrils of God. So why does God hate sin so much? So we talked earlier about how sin is to miss the mark. So if God is perfect in righteousness, anything that's not that is sin. So in another real sense, sin is anti-God. So God is like a razor-thin truth. And anything a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left is wrong, is sin. So it's only natural for God to dislike things that are against him. Consider like a firefighter. He, his goal is to put out the fire. His goal is to stop it from consuming and destroying. As with the doctor, he wants to get rid of and heal the disease. So is God with sin. It is, he's against it. He will exterminate sin and he will give justice. Here's a, a good quote by John Bunyan. Sin, sin turns all God's grace into wantonness. It is the dare of his justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, and the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. So it's basically taking things as God has made all about him and completely destroying them and throwing them on the ground and stepping on them. It is only right then for God to naturally hate sin because of its disgusting nature. So then what does God do to sinners? Isaiah 13, verse 11 and 12. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold. So what I find most frightening about a text like that is the fact that God said it because what God says is absolutely certainly going to happen. If you or I say we're going to do something, there's a possibility that it may not happen. We lack the ability, 
the resources, the strength, the power. But God doesn't have those problems. So when God says, I'm going to destroy the world for his iniquity, we can be certain that it is going to happen. It's like God has made a declaration of war against sin. He is going to come and he is going to enact justice. He doesn't mess around with sin. He's going to destroy it. That's what frightens me about that text is because it's true. He will destroy sin. So now I want you to think about how the sin is on you and how it comes out of you. So we're born into a fallen nature, spiritually dead, children of wrath. We inherit sin from Adam and from our own parents because it's carried down. There isn't anything that we can do that's not colored to sin. How we ought to mourn over our sin, that such a devil inside us dwells. It pollutes our thoughts. It deceives our minds. It makes us commit lies and acts of violence against our fellow man and of God. Sin is this horrible thing that's bubbling up inside of you, and it's why you do bad things. People say, I do bad things because of my circumstances. But no, you do bad things because at your very core, you are bad. Sin comes because it's inside of you. It comes out of you. Imagine a man just completely saturated with mud from head to toe. Everything that he touches gets polluted with dirt and mud and filth. He takes a step on a white carpet and leaves a treacherous stain. He touches a piece of glass and it becomes completely covered in mud and goo. That's what we are before God. We have so much sin inside of us and everything we do is just tainted and polluted and corrupted with sin that God ought to destroy us. We are completely vile before Him. How we ought to mourn over who we are. Are we not wretched? Can you not see that you are wretched before God? You are miserable. You ought to mourn over your sin because of what sin is, but not only what sin is, but because of who God is. God will destroy sin. Sin is in you. You must mourn over your sin. I want you to see the sin in you, the things that you've done, how you deserve hell. There will be a place where you'll either mourn now or you will mourn in hell. It's called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Consider the sorrow of sin. You will come to that realization, whether it be in this side of eternity or there, but you will see the heinous, horrible nature of sin and how it has done so much evil to you. So I urge you, reject the sin, mourn, grieve over your sin. It is horrible. So there's an interesting verse that really struck out to me in Lamentations. It's where Jeremiah the prophet is mourning, grieving over what has happened to Jerusalem. It's been completely destroyed. And so verse after verse, he's just talking about weeping and mourning. So I read this verse and this just illustration came in. I don't want to share with you. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. So you can imagine you have almost like this yoke on your neck and you're carrying this cart loaded with sin and you're just dragging it around. And imagine you're on a hill and suddenly your foot slips 
And this cart of sin begins to drag you and just pull you down the hill. And you become horrified because you see that at the edge, there's this cliff coming. So you, you're just panic-stricken. You try to catch the ground, but you cannot. You're just horrified. Your sin is dragging you towards destruction. Can you see what sin does? It pulls you towards hell. It's dragging you there. So another verse, Genesis 6, 6, where God is basically looking at all of creation pre-fall, right before he's about to destroy the world where Noah's flood, and he's grieved over what he sees. So if God is grieved when he sees sin, shouldn't that be true of us? Isn't it good to grieve over our sin? So there's two relationships you can have with sin. So you can either look at sin and you think, oh, no big deal. Or you can look at it and, oh, you'd be horrified by it. The natural person, they love sin. They really don't have a problem with it. That's why when they sin, they don't mourn, they don't grieve, they don't care. They, they actually find it liking and pleasing to their senses. But the person who's been changed of God, they hate sin. They're, they're mourned by it. They see it and they're appalled and abhorred by it. So which type of relationship do you have with sin? Are you grieved by it when you see it? Or is it, well, it's, it's okay. It's sort of acceptable. I don't, you know, we see it all the time. Everybody does it. No big deal. So we ought to hate sin. We ought to see what it's done to us. We ought to mourn and be grieved over it. So what type of a creature are you? Have you truly been born again? There's what I call the miracle of sorrow that, that happens in this verse. Blessed are those who mourn. So the natural person, he's completely blind. Go back to that image of the guy bathing in the fountain. He's blind. He can't hear. He has no idea what sin's doing. But imagine then somebody going into that fountain, pulling him out. He starts washing him off, starts cleansing him. And then you see this weird type of a surgery kind of go where you see him take out the guy's heart, but it's this weird stone. And you're like, what was this about? And he gives him a new heart. You see it beating within him. And suddenly the man starts to change. The color kind of comes back to his face, which once was like a, a paled albino color totally bleached from sin. You start to see color rejuvenate. You start to see his eyes that were once white open up. His ears open up. And you can see him start to, his countenance just totally changes. This is what God does through regeneration or being born again. He gives us a new heart. He takes out our old one. It's like stone. That's why he doesn't care when it plays with sin whether it gets cut with sin or pricked with sin, it doesn't care. It has no feeling. But God gives a new heart, one that hates sin. So imagine if you had a new heart, like, you know, we use the word for different things, but your inner self, what you really love. If God gave you a new heart, you would love different things and you would also hate different things. So what's happening in this verse, blessed are those who mourn, the comfort that they get comes from getting that new heart. They properly are able to see God's law with their eyes, and they love it. 
They're able to hear God's word and understand it and enjoy it. They're able then to do things with their hand for the glory of God and love it. They love God where they once hated him. So there's, I want to clarify, there is a true sorrow and there is a false sorrow. So there's a popular preacher who says, oh, repentance just means to change your mind. That's it. Just quick repentance, you know, change your mind. But that's not true because Judas repented. He felt sorry for what he did against Jesus. But the distinction between a true repentance and a false repentance is what really grieves you. Was it the sin or the results of sin? Judas was grieved not because he had sinned against God, but he says, because I condemned an innocent man. That is what he was grieved about. Or you have Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament, where he's confronted by Samuel. He comes up to him because he was supposed to slaughter all the oxen, but he disobeyed. So Samuel the prophet comes up to him and says, what, what do I hear? I'm hearing animal sounds, but you were supposed to kill them all. Remember that? He says, oh yeah, don't, don't worry about that. I got it covered. What I'm going to do, I wasn't going to keep them. I was going to sacrifice them to God. Yeah, that's what I was going to do. And then Samuel says, okay, well, it's better to obey God than it is to sacrifice. So then he's hit with a curse. And he says, You're, the kingdom's going to be ripped out of your hand. And then Saul grieves. He mourns. But what do you think he was really mournful about? The fact he had disobeyed God or he just lost the kingdom? He lost the kingdom. So when you examine your own heart to see if you have a true grief, what does it really grieve about? Is it, are you hurt because you've hurt somebody else, you have a consequence of the sin, or is it the very sin itself? Thomas Watson says this, It is sorrow for the offense rather than for the punishment. God's law has been infringed, his love abused. This melts the soul into tears. So imagine if I came home to my wife and I just I started insulting her, I was rude to her, and really just was hurting her feelings. Now, if I really loved my wife, do you think I would care? Absolutely. I would go back and I would say, that was just wrong. I was totally in the wrong. I was totally sinful. I should not have done that. But if I didn't love my wife, do you think I would really care? I, oh, well, I don't love her, so that's what she deserves. And that is true of the man before God. Are you grieved because what you've done to him and his law or that you've just done something and you're in a bad situation now? You know, you steal something and you get caught. Now you got to go to jail, shoplift, and you got caught in a lie. You get fired, all these things. You can see what this new heart does, this miracle of sorrow. So finally, then let's get into the comfort aspect. So blessed are the poor, or sorry, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not a false comfort. This is a true comfort. So it's not like you have a soft pillow, a pillow of a bed. But given what our context is talking about, it's a sorrow for sin. And it's almost the relief of that. The guilty conscience goes away. And there's now a peace that comes from that. But really, what, what stops up all our tears? Where does that sorrow go? How can it just disappear? 
And we have an answer to that. Kelly read a verse today that was like, oh, that's the verse I'm going to use. It's in Isaiah 53. It's where Jesus not only took our sins, but he also took our sorrow. 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So you can imagine for every tear of sorrow that we pour out, because it's almost like we've been moved to like a danger zone, or we, we realize the danger that we're in, and we just flood with tears saying, is there any help for me? What can I do about my sins? And you just mourn and you're grieved. But here comes this man of sorrows, Isaiah says. And for every tear that every person would ever cry, be it as big as the ocean, Jesus puts it on himself and goes to the cross. When he was in the garden, he said this, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus is that light in the darkness. He gives us hope when we're in that despair and that sorrow. It's as if we're in a dark cave and we can see just a crack of light. And that's all we need for our hope, to reach out and to grab hold of Jesus. See, repentance is the bridge from our mournful, grievous state that crosses over and to the comfort of Christ. You can almost think about it this way. You're mourning over your sin. You see its heinous nature. And those very tears water the seeds of repentance. And that repentance, when it grows up, almost like a vine, it reaches out to grab hold of Christ. We're planting some bean trees, and they, they have these little fingers. They go off, and they shoot, and they grab things. That's kind of what you can think about, like you're watering the repentance with the tears of your sorrow, and those little bean stalks want to grab hold of anything they can, and they want to grab a hold of Christ because Christ takes our sorrows off of us. He nails it to the cross, and they're completely gone because our sorrow was on Christ. So if you're grievous over your sin, know that Jesus Christ took that sorrow on himself, that you don't need to suffer that. So there's a good quote about, it's somewhat tied to sanctification. It's from Augustine. He who truly bewails the sins he has committed never commits the same sins he has bewailed. So think about you do something you don't like, if you really don't care, but you want to change it, how do you change it unless you really care? So if you really hate sin and you're really broken over it, you don't want to get near it with a 10-foot pole. You're like, I hate that thing. Get it away from me. So there's a change that happens in our heart where if we're grieved by sin, we, in some sense, are able to make our own spiritual progress towards sanctification. So there's sort of in conclusion on repentance, the only, the person who sorrows over his sin will run from it to Christ. He is the only comfort. So in the same way that people who are sick run and seek out after a doctor, so will the person who is grieved by their sin seek after Christ. So you can think sometimes you just, you've felt so ill and so sick you just, I, I just need to go somewhere. I just need some help. So that's true of somebody who sees their sin. They're grieved by it. They need somebody to help them. So your sorrow will almost push you, as it were, 
towards Christ in a way to where we're able to grasp hold of him and cling towards him. So there's, I think, not just two types of comfort that are in mind here. So there's, I think, a temporal comfort and also an eternal comfort. So obviously the immediate comfort that's seen here is the absolution of all your sins, that they're gone. You don't have to have the guilt over them anymore. As grievous as sin is, Christ takes it all on himself and removes it from you. You don't have to feel sorry for your sins anymore because Jesus has made you right with God. So what great comfort do we have when nobody has any more sins left in their life? Before they were playing with the dangers and hazards and sins, but now they're delighting in God, who He is. They're blessed by Him. And then there's also a future comfort. So when we're brought before God in heaven, there will be an endless comfort. And I just, this verse is just amazing. I could read it five times. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I just want to read it again because it's good. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So what a wonderful truth this is. Such a sweet promise that a day will come when death is gone, mourning is gone, crying is gone, tears are gone, they have passed away. You have nothing more to grieve, but you're free only in eternal bliss in the face of God, able to radiate in who He is, His character. No more sorrow, no more sin. It's gone, gone, gone. Only Christ. Only freedom in Christ. There is peace, real joy, Christ. Amen. <laughs> um, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the miracle of sorrow that you do give. How you're able to turn sin away, sin, turn sin in our hearts to something that's grievous, and how we just we desire to run to Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone here to grieve over sin, that they can see its horrible reign in their life, that they would turn to Christ. For those who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that they desire to be more and more like Him and that we can set our hope on Jesus and be excited about the bliss that comes from trusting Him. Amen.